guest today is the owner and brewmaster of Ecliptic Brewing and has been a pioneer of the craft beer revolution in the Pacific Northwest for the last 36 years. He brewed for McMinimins, Deschutes, and Full Sail, and is responsible for some of the tastiest beverages we've all enjoyed. This guy has a ridiculous amount of knowledge on how to make beers you want to drink. Here is my friend, John Harris. If my memory serves me correctly, you began your career in 1986 at McMinimins, is that right? Yeah, that's yeah? Right, yeah. Okay, so what happened before then? What led you to that spot? Well, the, um, in the, how was it, 1983, four, you know, the whole crap, what was actually called microbrews scene started uh, up in Seattle, um, Yakima, and eventually Portland in 84. And I just kind of um, discovered imported beer through a friend, older friend who said, stop drinking the rot gut. Here, let's try this imported German lager. It was like, wow, this does taste better, you know? And then the whole microbrew started and I kind of was just trying them as they came out and thought they were fun and different to something that was more flavorful than, you know, what was being made at Blitz Weinhardt here in Portland, Oregon. Well, yeah. Know? What could you get in 84? Like Pabst and Coors Light? And that's it? Well, as far as, I mean, well, they had Blitz Weinhardt in Portland making Blitz and Henry Weinhardt's Private Reserve, for instance. And then okay. You had uh, Rainier in Seattle. You had Olympia in Olympia, Washington. I mean, at that point, there was, you know, four really pretty large regional breweries on the West Coast that were making tons of beer. But they were all Pilsners, weren't they? Yeah, American Lager. Yeah. 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 Okay. What's the difference between American Lager and Pilsner? Uh, Pilsner is traditionally a beer, European-based beer, okay. uh, either Czech or German. Um, American Pilsner, because they use corn in it primarily. So, whereas in Germany, there's a purity law. They had this purity law thing, the Reinheitsgebot. That only allowed malt in beer. Okay. No cereal adjuncts, so no rice, no corn. And then, um, but all American lager at a certain point after World War II started using corn in the base, uh, probably during the war, World War II, because there was a shortage of barley. Yeah. So they started augmenting it with another carbohydrate. Okay. To get, you know, starch to turn into sugar to make alcohol. So I see. I see. Okay. So in 84, you had these few options around here, and your buddy started talking about German lager. Yeah, he turned me on to Dab, Dab okay. Lager, and uh, then, I, then I eventually found, um, you know, Guinness and other imports you could get yeah. in those days. And so I was just kind of like, you know, into beer all of a sudden, and I, you know, got Michael Jackson, not the gloved one, but the Michael Jackson, a British beer writer, wrote a book called The World Guide to Beer, and he wrote other books too, but um, he was just really instrumental in turning people on to beer in different, you know, unique styles from around the world. He's probably bummed about his name, right? He didn't use the initial or anything, like Michael J. Jackson or nothing like that? No, no, he was always Michael Jackson, and uh, he was but a I, great guy. Just um, unfortunately, he's passed now, mm -hmm. but uh, he was just uh, a great human being, and mm -hmm. he, he took me on a pub crawl around Europe at one point, or around London okay. at one point, which was really awesome. That when I was in London one time, and so. Okay. But anyhow, so I was uh, into that, and then honestly, uh, you know, like Bridgeport opened, Widmer opened, um, the McMinnons started brewing at Hillsdale Brew Pub, and which was the first brew pub in America in 80, uh, 85. and um. By the fall of '86, I, you know, I, I just answered a random ad that a housemate had pointed to me saying Brewer wanted Hillsdale Brew Pub and said, "This is your job, go get it." And I'm like, I started laughing, like, "Yeah, right." <laughs> you know, I don't know, if, I know enough about beer to be dangerous. You know, I don't. I've homebrewed with very little success, and she's like, "No, no, you go get that job." And I'm like, 
okay. So off I went and I ended up getting the job. <laughs> so this is at McMinimins, yeah, yeah. Hillsdale. Okay. Yeah. And so what, what was the position that you applied for to actually be the brewer? It was like brewer wanted Hillsdale Brew Pub. Yeah. So okay. brewer. So it's like, there was already a brewer there and, um, who was staying and they were getting ready to, um, open up the Cornelius Pass Roadhouse and the Lighthouse Brew Pub on the, in Lincoln City. And so they wanted to have a brewery at three different breweries. And then the idea was, you know, three people were hired to work at the three different breweries. And then this guy Conrad was going to be the, the manager of all the breweries. Okay. How many McMinimins were there in 1985, 86? Um, five. Five. And now there's 30, 70? I have no idea, but just like the hundreds of them, you know, wow. <laughs> they're everywhere now. But Five of them. And so, just think about that though. That's a lot. That, that, in those days, to have that many. Oh, I'm sure. Know? Yeah, I mean, it was pro it was still like a Portland cultural icon at that point, wasn't it? McMinnons. Yeah. Well, they were becoming, starting to be. Yeah. Yeah. I think so there was, you know, they had the whole big uh, let's get go, let's get drafted slogan thing about you know coming out of all our drafts on tap. They were, you know, they specialized in import beer. And then as the you know tons of import beer, but then as the micro brews started coming in, they started putting those on tap also, and then. Eventually, you saw mostly micros in some of these bars because there wasn't, I mean, as the, as the number grew, you know, now there's what, 9,000 in the country or something. Mm -hmm. So there's only a few now. But back then, you know, in between Oregon and Washington, there was, you know, for a long time, there's only about seven breweries mm -hmm. for many years. So. so, what was your shift like when you would go work there? Was it a normal nine to five? Did you work at night? No, it was a normal, I mean, it depended. Um, it was normal, like you know, eight to eight to four, nine to five kind of deal. I mean, uh -huh. it was whatever. Not, I mean, ideally, you would, ideally, you wanted to be so far along in the brew day before the pub opened. So, because you, you know, you shared a sink with the washer kegs, you shared that same sink with the the, the prep cook, you know, for the restaurant. So, you kind of had to get out of their way at a certain point and then not be in their way. So wow. it, was, it was kind of a dance, depending on the location. But um, yeah, it was kind of funny that you'd had to like, oh, you need to cut fries. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let me get the sink clean. You cut your yeah. fries, and I'll wash kegs again. You know, a little later. Yeah, kind of deal. So wow, that's cool. And uh, okay, so you would come in and begin the day, and so all the stuff that you were brewing would be drank that night. Oh no, no, it's it takes a good week or two to make beer. So okay. um, in those days, you know, we were McMinnis was basically a set up a like a it was a big homebrew setup. To be honest with you, that's what it was. They uh, were using malt extract which you can use to make beer to this day. So it was like a syrup, a concentrated syrup. And so we would start pouring um, you know, into a five-gallon five, five gallon bucket, you know, as many, you know, a certain amount of pounds to get the alcohol, to get the sugar content what we wanted to, to make the alcohol percentage we're looking for. Okay. And then we would also, like, we'd make it stout, like Terminator stout or whatever. We'd steep, um, we'd put roasted barley and black malt and things like that, caramel malt into these bags and steep them like a tea bag in the, in the hot liquid in the kettle and wa hot water get the flavor out of those, and then put the sh sugar syrup in. And then you boil that up, and then cool it down, and then ferment it with yeast, and then and about, that's seven days later you have beer. Okay, okay. And when you started there, did they allow you to experiment, or were you just like, hey, John, here's the recipe, follow this? That's actually what the cool part of, was of starting at McMinimins versus starting, say, locally at Bridgeport or Widmer or say Portland Brewing, which opened up right about the same time I started brewing, is that um, like Widmer's was German, you know, Bridgeport was English influenced, and Portland Brewing had Portland Ale. And by then, uh, it was like, 
Let's get crazy. Let's throw candy bars in our beer. Let's throw, let's make Ruby Tuesday, get sued by the Rolling Stones, which becomes Ruby. <laughs> you know, Is that what happened? Yeah, but yeah. eventually they got the letter they were looking for. I'm sure the brothers probably have that frame somewhere on their wall, the cease and desist to stop using <laughs> Ruby Tuesday, you know, and they call it Ruby now, right? So, yeah. But anyhow, um, so no, it, it was really like, have at it, have fun, brew with fruit. They're really the first brewery to uh, brew with fruit in America was the McMinimins. And um, to the point where there were, eventually a letter came from the TTB, or which was the BATF then, which governed breweries and federally saying, wait, <laughs> this is not on the approved list of ingredients. And so we had to petition the BATF. Oh, yeah, there's a whole list of things you can put in beer. So and, they stop you from just like throwing an old shoe in it or something. Exactly. Or like you might want to put, say, basil in the beer, and that's, that's approved, but maybe marjoram isn't. You know what I mean? Or oregano might not be approved, you know, just for example, you know. So there's a whole list, and you can look it up online if you want. It's easy to find huh. it now. But anyhow. So you have to petition to get ingredients added to that list. Well, it's called a formula. You have to get a formula approval. So if it's something that's not exempt on the list, and you can just use any day you want, you have to – even to this day, you have to file a formula for it. Just because it's the USDA and they're worried about you killing people or something. Well, it's not that we're governed by the – like I said, the TTB. So mm -hmm. the FDA doesn't have anything to do with us. Okay. They don't govern breweries. Which is great. Um, <laughs> not that we do anything weird, but just it, it, a lot of the um, – being we're making a beer that has, a product that has alcohol in it, which is a preservative you know, itself, so that it's kind of an exempt from a lot of food regulations. But we are still governed by – don't think we're going crazy out there. We're not. <laughs> but I just – but um, anyhow, so you have to have this improved ingredient. So back in the like, we started brewing with lots of different fruit. And um, we were allowed to experiment with that and uh, really make beers we wanted to make. We had the certain house beers we make all the time, but we were also allowed to make our own beers every once in a while. That's really cool. That's, in my opinion, that's how you should run a business. You should hire smart, intelligent, experimental people and just kind of give them the opportunity to make stuff happen, right? And so sure. when they had you in there and you were experimenting with everything, <laughs> did you create any of these these formulas that they still use now? Well, one point along the, along the way, um, like I said, we were using this malt extract, in which we wanted, me and the other brewers and brewery manager, wanted to get away from it. You know, it's just, it was really consistent. One day it was like, for number's sake, 82 bricks, which makes it really thick. Some of it was 72 bricks, which made it really thin. And if it was the thinner, the list, you had to add more to the kettle. So you never do consistency-wise. It was really um, back and forth. Plus, you know, I had to handle these 400-pound drums <laughs> that were kind of dangerous. Mm -hmm. And um, anyhow, um, so we eventually uh, got the brothers to agree to go to all-grain brewing where we would use uh, actually malted barley, crack it, steep it in hot water, convert to starch to sugar, get the sugars out of it, and actually brew beer the way it was designed to be from start, you know, from, from scratch. So um, in that process, I had to move. Hillsdale was going to be the place we did that. I was at the Roadhouse before that, and then I came back to Hillsdale and uh, was able to brew with all grain, which was which really radically kind of changed the um, the beers a bit to the better. And um, at one point, we were working on Hammerhead, which is the only beer I actually, actually ever had anything to do with that's still available. Mm -hmm. And um, I made a batch with a little bit of extra hopping in it that everybody liked, and it continued on to this day in part of the recipe. So I have a little bit to do with Hammerhead, but not not all of it, but part of it. Nice. Nice. That's very cool. Yeah. Uh, so experimenting with these uh, options each day when you get there and figuring out new um, methods and uh, formulas. And did, I mean, you said that they allowed it and they kind of encouraged it. 
did you ever feel like um like maybe you were you were getting close to stumbling on something was it i mean w- were you planning it out and trying to figure things out or were you just throwing it to the wind and trying to see what would happen well i mean the day i started i had so much knowledge about beer and how beer is made and how to make beer and things like that and that grew exponentially you know um pretty much right away like cuz i got into it actually daily making beer i learned so much so much you know yeah, two months later, I knew way more than I did when I started. Yeah. And um, so it wasn't like you just go do whatever you want, but it was kind of like they were very irreverent about brewing. I mean, to the point where at one point, um, the, they were getting ready to brew their first batch of beer, and Mike and Minna went out to the bar. It was legend. I heard. I wasn't there. And grabbed a Mars bar, a candy bar, off the, off the bar, opened it, and threw it in the brew kettle. You know, just to kind of say, we're going to do whatever we want here. We're going <laughs> to. We're doing our own thing, you yeah. Know? And uh, so that, that's kind of their their spirit from the beginning to the point where, like, hey, there's this wild grape vine behind the roadhouse. Maybe we should make a beer with those grapes. So we did, you know, and things like that, you know. Um, Stella Blue with blueberries, you know. Ruby Tuesday with raspberries, you know. Made Marion with Marion berries, you know. Just all these different, you know. We played with rhubarb, you know. All these types of you know fruits and vegetables that no other brew was even touching back then. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. And how much interaction did you have with the brothers? Were they still coming in daily or? Oh, yeah. You still see the brothers. Oh, for sure. They, yeah. They'd be rolling through. And at that point, I mean, they had hired a manager to cover the breweries, but there was still the pub. The pub managers were still there and stuff. But they would roll through to check on places. You know, you'd see them once or twice a week normally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how, how often were people just in the back getting hammered? Because you got you to gotta taste the product, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean – it's interesting. I mean, minimums, that, that that really didn't happen. I mean, yeah. I mean, they uh, one of their things was that and probably to this day is that they, everybody pays for their beer. They don't. There's no shifties. There's no free beer. I mean, you watch huh. you watch them come in and throw down that dollar for that pint of Budweiser or whatever that might be they were drinking that day. But that was you know, so it wasn't really in after hours parties that I know, that I was part of at least. Um, <laughs> but we did have to try the beer. We would taste the beer regularly and yeah. And um, but I mean, I mean, you had to. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, it was. Some of the beer was good, but some of the beer was, you know, just well. There was no refrigeration. The key to successful fermentation is to have your tank set at a certain temperature where it stays at seventy degrees or sixty-five degrees or whatever degree you want. Um, but these were, like I said, these are un- actually these are open fermenters with no lids, which is pretty traditional in uh, Britain. Okay. But anyhow, there was no refrigeration, so if it was a ninety-eight outside and you could get your room to ninety-two, pretty good chance by the next morning you're. The beer is going to be at 82 degrees, and yeah. so it just, it just makes a different product at different temperatures. So how often did you taste something and it was garbage? Is it like four out of five times? No, 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 no. It wasn't like that. But just, but, I mean, but sometimes you'd make a batch of a certain beer, and, and that fermentation would, would rise, the temperature would rise, and then it would cause um, the, um, you know, the beer to ferment a different way and ferment different sugars and produce different, you know, different esters are called, different higher alcohols that give different flavors. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if it's it. You want it at 68 and it gets to 82, it's going to be a slightly different beer. Yeah. And so it just, you know, but it was, but like I said, it was really kind of like, we're making beer, you know, it, was, it wasn't like, if you want to buy another brewery in town to be more, we are making beer, you know, yeah, you know like yeah. that, you know. So this was, um, yeah, I mean, it really was just kind of like, you know, let's just do it, you know. That's Free cool. Spirit, I mean, you know? that's, that's the feeling I get every time I go into a McMinimins. It's just so, 
uh, for lack of a better word, it's just very hippie. You know, everywhere that with from the decor and the lighting fixtures and the menu, it's just very uh, different. And so it it makes total sense that that mentality would go with everything. Where they're just like, let's just see what happens. You know, it's it's a very unique place, and they've got seventy locations or whatever now. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, it worked out for them. It's pretty cool. Um, so how long did you stay there at McMinimins? I was there for two years. Two years? Yeah. Okay. And so what happened towards the end of the two years? You just kind of figured you needed to to go to something new? Oh, that's a longer story. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, if you but, don't have um, to get into it if you bottom, want to. Bottom line was is that um, um, I left and um, I was just starting to talk with this guy uh, who came through several times uh, who wanted to start a brilliant bend, Oregon. And... Um, I, like I said, I stopped, I stopped working and just started working on that project with this guy. And that um, that kind of never really happened. Um, it just, uh, yeah, I don't think, you know, what he wanted to do, what I wanted, we weren't meshing in okay. the end. And um, and um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I was like, well, there's that person over there. We're just a uh, brewer's class at UC Davis. And I'm like, that guy's got lots of money. <laughs> and he would probably fund us. But he's like, no, 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 I can't do that. I, you know, he wouldn't. He wouldn't bring on investors. So mm. it's like, how are we gonna, how are we gonna do this if we don't have somebody with you know money or something? Yeah, you, know? you kind of need money to get that going. Yeah. So um, so I ended up uh, right about the same time, another ad popped in the paper. <laughs> you know, back in the classified ads, you know, and like you actually go look through the newspaper looking for jobs, you know, pre-internet type of weirdness, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a brewer wanted the shoots brewery, Bend, Oregon. I'm like, wow, well, that's interesting. So I um, ended up applying and getting that job in 1988. So, um, which necessitated a move to Bend. Um, Bend was a different place in '88. Oh, totally, yeah, totally. Different. It was a it was a recovering lumber town that was heading toward tourist town. Mm-hmm. You know, Bat Bachelor had been there forever, but it was truly becoming what it is now, which is just a, a big, huge tourist town, tourist destination. Well, yeah, and how many breweries are in Bend now? There's got to be at least 10 or 15. Yeah, there's countless breweries in Bend now. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. a whole, like, at least 10, I mentioned 10 yet. But if you include Redmond, that little patch, a strip of land between Sun River and Redmond, yeah, there's probably at least maybe 15 breweries probably. Yeah. And so in 88, was Deschutes basically the only one? They were the first brewery in, in, in Central Oregon. Um since the brewery that was in Prineville back in the like early 1800s, late 1800s, early 1900s, was there was never a brewery in Bend before the Shoots Brewery. What was the one in Prineville in the 1800s? I can't remember what it was called. I think it was like the Prineville Brewery or something. But um, they're not in operation anymore. No, no, no. Okay. Gone. I don't. I don't know much about them. I just know that in searching around the history of breweries in Oregon, that the the first brewery to be on that side of the mountains was in Prineville. Okay. That's all. That's. I don't know much more about it than that. Huh, that's interesting. Someone else might. If you do, <laughs> let me know. <laughs> have to Google it. Uh, so you moved down to Bend, and I mean that must have been pretty exciting, right? It's the only one in in Central Oregon, and at this point, this is kind of like the direction your life is going, right? You kind of you signed up for that. Yeah, I mean, like, um, you know, like a lot of people can cook at home, but you put them on a line in a in a, in a restaurant to cook for everybody. A lot of people can't handle that, you know, can't do that kind of work. And and similar thing with brewing is there's a certain piece of science, microbiology meets up with alchemy, you know, and passion. And um, and I was able um, at one point through the whole deal that like at one point at McMinimums, people were like they wanted other pubs wanted the beer that I I was making. Like oh, we want the beer that John's making. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like because I got I mean I'll be honest, I got pretty good at 
crafting beer out of non-refrigerated spaces and malt extract and things like that. So just kind of an affinity for it, you know, in my early 20s. And then that just kind of turned into where I am now today, you know, 37 mm-hmm. years later, making beer, you know. So, but um, but no, it was, it was a cool job. I mean, yeah, I'm a brewer. You know, it's like, you what? Yeah, I make beer. And now you say that, it's like, oh, yeah, well, whatever. I know 20 brewers over my friends, you know. But back then it was pretty a pretty rare job. Well, yeah, and to be able to go in the grocery store and see a product that you've just made back at the shop, you know, that's that's got to be so rewarding. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's definitely something about, um, you know, I got like a psychic reading at one point, like 87 or something by some psychic reading. She goes, what do you do? What do you do? And I'm like. You're supposed to know that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I said, uh, oh, I make beer. And she goes, oh, you heal people with your beer. So I took that one and I remembered that. It's like, why not? That's awesome, you know? And, I, and of course, you know, people can't get on the opposite side of what, of good beer and bad beer, you know, yeah. behavior, you could say. For you sure. Know? But, yeah. um, but no, but there's something about making a consumable product, whether that be beer, wine, whiskey, um, Making a great plate of pasta in a restaurant you love and a chef who could just somehow nuance some flavor you never thought you could get out. Like, what do you put in this to make it taste like this? Can't tell you, you know, that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. like, you know, just, you know, there's something about that where you can, um, you know, like I've had beer, I made beer, you know, that's been shared at weddings, at, you know, promotions, at funerals, wakes, um, births, death, you know, I mean, it's like yeah. you know, these, these products have been, t- have been part of people's lives more than just. You know, part of their celebrations, part of their, you know, you know, get what I'm saying, driving as like you, you touch people without even knowing them, you know. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like music that way in some ways, you know. Yeah, for me, and I think for a lot of people, it's the thing that you do, like you go to work and maybe you like your job and maybe you don't, but you get home and that's just kind of how you chill and relax and it just kind of helps you ease into the night. And so it's a, it's a positive thing. It can, like you said, become a negative thing at some point, but... Right. It's kind of like a positive thing, and just the same as going to a restaurant you love and getting good food. Yeah, it, it uh, becomes a part of of the the person that you're interacting with, and you don't even know you're interacting with them. You're just putting this thing out, and then they're right. they're taking it. So that's really cool. Yeah, so it's like kind of like art in a way. Just was like, well, hope you like it. You know? Yeah, <laughs> that's an ugly painting. You know, <laughs> I hate that painting. You know, yeah. but one may love it and buy it. You know, yeah. so but yeah, you know, but it's really cool that this whole industry though is like. Which was the way it was years ago, where every town had a brewery, you know, and and that was kind of back to that. It took a few years of major breweries to take over the, you know, beer sales across the country. But now you basically are finding a brewery pretty much anywhere. Yeah, but it seems like it's pretty heavily concentrated in this area. Is it not? Is it everywhere? Seems like Portland. No, Portland's a mecca for Portland. I mean, Oregon in general is a mecca for beer. I mean, just you know, just other cities and states that have as much much of a beer scene, but some states don't have much of a beer scene. You know, like. North Dakota, for instance. I mean, there's breweries there, but there's not a whole lot. You know, yeah. <laughs> nothing against North Dakota. <laughs> <laughs> That's where you're going next. No, but it's just. I mean, I mean, I was just in upstate New York, and I was driving. It's like Sleepy Hollow Brewery. You know, mm. I'm like, whoa. You know, we're, we're, yeah. You wouldn't even know it was just right there on the side of the road. You know, so yeah. it's just you know. I mean, they're yeah. I mean, they're kind of everywhere now. So, how long were you in Bend? I was in Bend for uh, just about four years. Okay. And w- was that a positive experience down there at the shoots? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, they had refrigeration on their fermenters. It was awesome. You, know? <laughs> you could actually, like, set the temperature and, and make that batch. Didn't make it again a month later. And, oh, it, t- it tastes the same. It's awesome. So, no, it, it was great because um, 
Gary Fish, who's the owner of Deschutes, um, you know, he was looking for someone who actually had brewed before. And so he didn't necessarily just want someone who came out of the UC Davis brewing program or something who was really trained to read lab reports and work at Anheuser-Busch or Budweiser, you know, or Miller or Coors. But um, he wanted someone who had, you know, a couple of years experience. And I kind of fit that bill right away, you know, kind of. So um, I went down and, you know, interviewed and got hired. And, you know, and there I was able – there I really had total – other than three starting beers we had – that he wanted to keep going all the time. It was pr- once again, it was you know pre free reign to make whatever you wanted. But the difference was that that, that, that fruit was not allowed. <laughs> that pr- what was not allowed? Fruit. Oh, fruit. Okay. Yeah, that was not. He was not into that. So I had to put that kind of thing aside, which was fine, and um, concentrate more on. He was really into traditional, you know, American made English style ales. You know, that's where a lot of this craft brewing thing started was emulating emulating the beers of England. Or Germany, if you made lager, but if you're making ale, it's mostly England, and then you started using these American you know, ingredients that just didn't taste like European ingredients or British hops, for instance, where American hops were totally different flavors. So, yeah, before you know it, you're making beers and British beers with this beer tastes like cat piss, you know, <laughs> which was a cascade hop, which just threw this kind of kind of dank, you know, citrusy kind of thing that just wasn't you know as, as civilized as you know European hops. So, did you have to import the hops? Well, no, not really. I mean, hops have been, you know, growing, especially in Oregon, for you know, countless years, you know, centuries of. But hop I growing. thought you said you were trying to emulate the British. Oh, we, we, yeah, we would try to emulate the British. Yeah. So, I mean, did you have to get hops from England? You could get hops from England. Yeah, okay. you could. Um, I mean, I mean, memories can't remember all of it, but you know, back then, I mean, we were primarily using American-grown hops because they were, you know, locally you didn't have to pay to have them brought in, and mm-hmm. there wasn't so many. I mean, you could find some classic. European varieties like Saz hops from the Czech Republic or Hallertau from Germany or East Kent Golding from uh, England. And we could get these hops and you could use them. But um, as far as um, everyday use, a lot of them, you know, microbreweries started using local hops because they were just available. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, we were, um, I remember like Carl, who was the first brewmaster at Bridgeport, he has a story where he tried to go down and buy a bale of hops from a, <laughs> from a hop farmer like, you want a what? Uh, can I just buy that bale of hops from you? What? <laughs> you know, like it was like because there's no such thing as these small breweries. We're, we're, all these hop growers were just selling under contract to you know that you know AB Miller Coors, Blitz Weinhardt, whatever regional brewery you know would buy direct to them. Uh, okay, so they would just, ship it up to Michigan or whatever. Well, all, all hops go to Yakima, pretty much. Okay, in America, they all that's where all the hop broke you know sellers brokers tend to. I don't know why Yakima, but other than the fact that Yakima is the biggest hop growing region in America, huh. but um, for some reason that's where all the all the hops from Oregon just get shipped up to Yakima. And that's where they get distributed from. Huh. from the, they're stored in refrigerator or freezers, actually, huh. up in Yakima. But and which are are they still producing any beers that you were responsible for in the eighties? Oh, the shoots. Yeah. Oh yeah, there's still um, three three four beers that are still around that I had my hand in. Uh, well, just. Blackbeat Porter, for instance. Okay. Mirror Pond Pale Ale. Um, Damn. Obsidian Stout and uh, and our Holiday Beer Jubal Ale were all beers that I had my hand in at one point. So. Yeah, that's like the majority of them, right? <laughs> well, they have a whole bunch of fresh squeeze stuff now. So. Yeah, no, those are like the ones I think of when I think of Deschutes. Yeah, Very nice. That's school. cool. So Yeah, so those are still made. And um, what's ironic, though, is that um, if you ever asked me that when I – have a beer that would where I'd have a beer that would sell more than one of those beers. I would I would have laughed you out of the out of the park. But like, but our Starburst IPA actually sells more 
in Oregon now than any of those mirror, the mirror pond does, for instance. It's really mm -hmm. kind of surreal mm -hmm. that to think that ever would have happened. Yeah. <laughs> I never thought that, you know, so. Huh. And so because you couldn't experiment with fruit when you were at work, did you still have a kit at home that was set up and you kind of do some crazy mad scientist stuff there in your garage? You know, I've never, I mean, honest, the honesty is I've never really been a home brewer. Um, okay. So you weren't going home and doing it. No, I was, okay. I, I have brewer friends who would <laughs> brew beer all day and then go home and brew beer at night at their house. And I, I just, that was never me. I mean, I, I brewed a bit before I got into beer with a friend of mine and uh, wasn't very good. We didn't know what we were doing. We were blowing up bottles and stuff. We were, had no idea what we were doing. And, um, and then uh, there was a period of time though, between, um, when uh, it into shoots where I, um, I helped a local distributor who's uh, not around anymore. They, um, named Admiralty. I, they wanted to know more about how to make beer. So I put together a kind of a pretty good, about a 10 gallon homebrew setup for them. And then uh, start teaching them how to make beer on the on the homebrew system, and then I brewed on that for a little while between uh, my, the McMinniman and the Deschutes job. So I would I'd actually take it to my house and I brew with it. That was about my biggest stint with homebrewing. But then once I got back into a brewery, it was like I made beer all day. I would go <laughs> to do something else at night. Yeah, you know? but, yeah, I get that. But but there's I mean there's a lot of good homebrew out there. I mean people making some world class beers at their house. I mean it's it's pretty cool. But the tough part. If you're brewing it at your house, is you can't really distribute it nationwide or anything. You can give it to your friends. Aren't there tons of legal hoops you have to jump through just to get something out there in a store? Well, yeah. I mean, if you're gonna, you know, you're allowed to brew. I think it's like fifty gallons or a hundred gallons a year total as a home brewer. Huh. Um, I have a pretty good feeling that there's some brewers making more than that <laughs> at their house. You know yeah. what I mean? I have a 15, you know, 15, 30 gallon system. Oh, let's see. One, two, three, you're done, you know, but anyhow, long story short, um, yeah, I mean, if you want to, you know, to become a licensed brewer, you have to get federal approval and also state approval. Hmm. Um, so in Oregon, you need the TTB to license you. And then you need to have your Oregon liquor OLCC license to brew. Um, and then if you, then if you want to sell your beer into other states, you have to be licensed in those states also. Like right now I'm trying to get licensed in, Montana and Arizona right now and going through the hoops. Oh, you want that document? Okay, great. So I'm having to do that. But anyhow, so yeah, you just, so you can't just, I mean, if you want to distribute beer into a store or in a bar, you mean legally you should have a, a license to do, that, to do that. So are you saying there's less options in Montana? If you went to just like a 7-Eleven or something, you wouldn't be able to find as many types of beer because everybody has to get an additional document to sell it there? No, no, no. For, no, for us to import beer and for us to sell our beer to a distributor in Montana, we have to be licensed. That's what I mean. Yeah. But, oh, no, there's breweries in Montana for sure, but not like there is in Oregon. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, what about Utah? Utah is probably fairly difficult too because they, don't they have limits on the alcohol content? Yeah. If, it, if, it's, if it's over 3.2 or what is 4% alcohol by volume, um, it has to be sold in a, in a liquor store. Uh -huh. So you'll find full strength beer out there. It's just that you're not going to find it in a, in a, a safe way or like Fred Meyer type store that yeah. you would hear. Um, laws are changing everywhere. Um, but uh, as far as, you know, Utah, you know, not much, not many brewers sell a lot of beer in Utah. Mm -hmm. Though there, are, there is a pretty good craft brew scene in Utah, though, of uh, brewers out there who make good, some good beer. Mm -hmm. They sure. just 
they just don't let the local government know? <laughs> oh, they, oh, they do. I know it's legal. It's just you, like I said, you got to, you can't just, you can't just, you have to make a special trip to another store. So you have mm. to go to, like, well, just like in Oregon, if you want to get booze, you got to go to an Oregon liquor store. Yeah. You can't just go to yeah. Safeway and buy a bottle of Jack or something. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to go. For sure, that's such a weird rule. Such a weird rule. You just drive across the river. You go get a bottle inside Safeway in Washington. Washington, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. That's weird. And you don't pay sales tax down here, so. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting know. how like, how many how much beer is sold in, like, how much beer like, a brewery like ours sells in, in Portland versus what sells across the river in uh, Washington. So I think there's a lot of people who try. I think a lot of people travel across the bridges. Yeah. Well, yeah. Same thing for, for buying a car. You know, yeah. so you don't have to pay that sales tax. All right. So you're down there in Bend. You did two years at McMinimins. You did four years at Deschutes. Six years, two reputable breweries. You're probably getting a decent name for yourself. And it sounds like the industry works on merit. So it was probably pretty easy to to make the next jump. Yeah? Oh, sure. I mean, I was um, – yeah, that- uh, Jane, who's my wife, you know, now we weren't married then, but you know, she didn't, she had, didn't really like Ben, didn't like that. What it, it wasn't, it really wasn't that cool of a town, to be honest with you. I mean, <laughs> if I wasn't brewing there, I probably wouldn't have lived there yeah. in, in those days. So, yeah. but anyhow, um, but she expressed, you know, that she's, I, I can't live here. I got to get out of here. And, uh, I had a friend at Full Sail, um, was their brewmaster and he, um, he would come down to visit, we'd hang out and stuff. And he knew of her, um, dislike of the town and, um, Full Sail was approached uh, to do a project in Portland with the McCormick and Schmick's chain, which is, I don't know, it's still around, but it's not as prevalent as it used to be. Mm-hmm. But um, they were going to put a brewery next to their restaurant in downtown Portland, or one of the restaurants on the waterfront. And um, I basically got offered a job to um, run that brewery for them in Portland. And uh, and at that point at Deschutes, we were just looking at, um, we had pretty much squeezed every tank we could into of the site on Bond Street in downtown Bend that we were out of room. We actually added an addition where we put in some more tanks in the parking lot and a silo on the roof. And we were starting to shoot. We started to talk about what's what are we gonna do next? Do we do we build another brewery? You know how how you know the owner was trying to figure out how he wanted to be, and uh, we were just starting to plan that brewery. And um, I felt that uh, this opportunity came up, and I was like, you know what? I can't. It's not fair to to him to like start this project and not see it through to fruition because mm-hmm. it would be like jumping out halfway wouldn't, this is a you know, you're out kind of moment for me in my opinion. So I, um, I took this offer to come to, back to Portland to work for Full Sail. So, um, and that was really, it was really difficult to do that because I kind of left, you know, the brewery to help build, you know, being the first brewer there and it's like, oh, just, but you know, um, I still, I was still the same person. So <laughs> that worked out. <laughs> So, you know, but also I was always open for, you know, some always another challenge and stuff. And um, it seemed like the right time to to go to, to go back to Portland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes it pretty easy if your wife doesn't like where you're living. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, but, you know, Full Sail was making some fun beer too, but it was also a non-fruit brewery. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that was, uh, you know, there's no fruit beer. <laughs> Why is everybody reluctant to use fruit? Yeah, I don't know. You know, to be honest with you. <laughs> you know, I don't know. <laughs> you know, back then it was just a different the market was just different, you know, just people what people expected out of a brewery. Um today they expect way more innovation, way more wildness, craziness, 
snowy weird stuff in beer has, has become really, really, really popular now. More so than, I mean, it ever was back in the past, even though some breweries were playing with it earlier than others. But there was this whole kind of traditional thing about um, microbrews, you know, that, that, that kind of either followed an English or a British, probably a British or a German um, slant, stance, I guess you'd say. Okay. You, you, kind of, you kind of model your tradition off one of those two traditions. And that was the case across, you know, across the country, really. You know. Okay, so you're saying it was probably more traditional 20, 30 years ago, but not so much anymore, right? I mean, I guess there are still some places that are more traditional, but it seems like there's a lot of experimentation going on now with, with some of the breweries around. Oh, there's tons. Yeah. yeah. Question. Oh, yeah. It's, it's an arms race now. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what'd you put in the beer? Oh, my God. I never thought of that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So you always, it's cool. You know, you always rush into like, you know, I, like I made a, a prickly pear beer last year, earlier this year or late last year. I can't remember, but it made the beer red. You know, it's like yeah. kind of cool. Yeah. Well, I didn't think the fruit, the fruit was a bit more sour than I thought it was going to be. So mm. I, if I did it again, I'd make some changes, but, uh -huh. <laughs> but it was fun, you know? Uh -huh. Just have a red beer go across the, you know, come across the bar and walk through the restaurant and be like, what's the red beer? Yeah. I want Is that. that. Cranberry <laughs> juice? Well, how do you feel about ciders and how do you feel about seltzers? Oh. Seltzers are pretty popular right now. Yeah. I mean, cider, well, ciders, you know, it's traditional as beer in lots of ways. I mean, fermenting apples or pears or, or both, whatever. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm not a big cider fan um, myself, but I appreciate a good cider. Um, the seltzer thing, I mean, it's kind of like a wine cooler. It's like the new wine cooler, you know, from, the, from the 80s and mm -hmm. 90s. The California cooler, you know, where you're drinking basically a malt-based um, alcohol product that had fruit, some type of fruit in it. So the seltzer thing, I don't know. I mean, it's, um, I might have tried them. I have I have some, my daughters, you know, they brought some home and I'm, okay, yeah, it's nice carbonated water with a fake raspberry flavor. Yeah. <laughs> oh, whoa, hey, I feel kind of weird now. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, you know. Well, I mean, it's not, is it, how different is it a vodka cranberry if you think about it, you know? Yeah, well, and then there's people like my mom who will mix it with vodka, you know? So it's just like. Oh, wow. It's seltzer with vodka. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just like, it's just like a, an additional up. mixer, you know? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's interesting how their, their popularity is already starting to wane as far as the industry trends are going. They're still popular, but they're, they're not as popular as they were two years ago, you could say. Well, it's kind of like in, in any, any industry when somebody pokes through and creates something new, there's this huge rush to get that product and then everyone else copies it. And so that's what happened. I mean, I think I could be wrong, but I think White Claw was first. It, yeah, it was one of the first, yeah. It seems like it was. And that was the most popular. But then you got like Natty Light, Seltzer, and Budweiser. So, you know, they got, everybody had to make their own. And now you go down the aisle and there's 20 different ones and it just kind of lost its appeal. But, I mean, there, there's a certain type of person that just wants to drink those. My buddy, he's just a regular dude, you know, and he prefers to drink those, I think, because they just don't make him full or something. So, I don't know. They, they fit a certain demographic. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, it's, and, you know, I personally don't care. I mean, it's like we start drinking, you know, some alcohol. At least, you know, yeah. keeping the industry afloat, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but they're, um, yeah, I mean, there's someone who wants to, like, watch their calories or whatever or, you know, but um, yeah. and now you're starting to see a lot of the ready to RTD cocktails that are now just like you go buy a margarita, right? A can of margarita right there, you know. So that's becoming pretty popular too. Have you ever seen the little circle thing? Uh, they have Fred Meyer and it's just got a top like a can, but it's only like two inches tall. I forget what they're called. They're so gross. Huh, I, I bought one once just to try it. It's kind of like 
like syrupy wine almost. Huh. Oh, they're terrible. Don't get one. Okay. Are they carbonated or? I don't remember it being carbonated. No, it's like fruit juice that had wine in it. Oh, okay. Yeah, it I sucked. Don't, <laughs> <laughs> don't do it then, right? No. Uh, it's such a cool industry. And it, to me, it's kind of like in terms of uh, figuring out what you're going to do and finding something that people enjoy that they're going to continue to purchase. It's kind of like weddings. Like weddings will never go away. Alcohol is never going to go away. It's, it's a very consistent way to make money. Right? Sure. I mean, people love drinking. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it, it's interesting just like, like right now, I mean, honestly, like the 20, 2022 has been a really, for the for the beer industry nationwide, it's been a really slow year for some reason. And, and a lot, all the analysts are trying to figure what's going on. Are people drinking more cocktails? Are they drinking RTDs? Are they drinking seltzer? You know, so like right now, beer's not, you know, beer's, you know, just a little soft this year for uh, for most breweries this year. Just uh, to, people are just not drinking as much beer as, this year as they did last year. So hmm. it's kind of funny. Yeah, that's interesting. But I, I don't need to analyze that right now. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so do you have to worry about at any point in your career? Have you had to worry about making money, or have you always just been the guy who is focusing on the way things taste? Hmm. Like, are you in the back office counting numbers, and are you just always out there brewing and and making the product? Oh yeah, I mean, I'm I do a lot of counting <laughs> these days. I, I mean, like accounting, like worrying about oh, it's a six percent year over year growth, you know, this thing and that thing. Do you do you ever have to worry about that stuff, or are you always just the the mastermind behind the way things taste? Oh, I mean, well, in any business, I mean, like you know, first, yeah, we, I have a brewery, I have, I have a business that happens to be a brewery, not a brewery that happens to be in business. You know, what I mean, so it's yeah. like, it's, it's a business first, so yeah. Um, you know, at this point, I mean, I don't physically make the beer anymore. I just, I, there's no way I can make all of the beer. When yeah. I first started, I did, but then eventually I hired a, a, another brewer to help me, and then another brewer, another brewer, and then the business grew, and then you got more removed from the brew. But, but I'm not fully, totally removed from the beer at all, but just, I don't necessarily make it anymore. I mean, but I'm part of the, you know, when we decide to make a new beer, you know, we all, it's a whole group of us get together to talk about it. Yeah. Have a small little brewery only makes two kegs, two to four kegs at a time. So we can do a little pilot test batch. So we do a lot more research now than we were able to. In the past, we had to be like, okay, we're pretty sure this is what's going to happen. And then we'd brew it. And then we only could make 15 barrels or roughly 25 to 26 kegs. So mm -hmm. it's like, oh, I hope that this, I hope this idea is good. <laughs> <laughs> but after years of experience and then having other brewers who work with you, their years of experience, you tend to have a pretty good idea what's going to happen. Yeah. But now we're able to really fine tune stuff a lot better now with, with our pilot brewery to be able to let's try that hop. Let's brew another batch of say Starburst for instance. But let's throw this different hop in there and see what it tastes like. See mm -hmm. if we like it better. Mm -hmm. So we can do some more experimentation that way, which is pretty fun. That's cool. Well, I got a little bit ahead of myself. Uh, let's let's wrap up full sale and then we'll get to Ecliptic because full sale was the last stop before Ecliptic. Yeah. Right. Okay. So how long were you at full sale? I was there twenty years. Twenty years. Yeah. Nice. Long time. Yeah. Basically, you know, yeah. I had some kids. <laughs> needed to have a steady job. Yeah. Know? And um, yeah, I mean, the full sale experience was was great. I mean, like I, I said, I mean, I was hired to um, run this brewery for them in Portland. They're based out of Hood River. So every, you know, you know, the corporate offices were 60 minutes away, 60 miles away. So they really wanted someone they could trust who knew how to make beer. And, and I had, you know, in my, at that point, six years of experience. Um, 
that they, 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 having known the owners, they, they're like, we can you know trust John to take care of this for us. And so, but through those twenty years, I mean, when we first started there, there was a it was added capacity for full sale in itself because they were you got to keep in mind that like this is like look at this by nineteen eighty eight you know you had just in Oregon you had Bridgeport, Widmer, Portland Brewing, McMinimins, those four breweries, and then in eighty eighty seven you added Oregon Trail and um, what was the other one? Can't remember. Or Oregon Trail. Then you got. Rogue the shoots. So you know, in nineteen eighty eight you only have about seven breweries in the state. So seven, right? Now we have three hundred, something like that, you know. So um so when you went to the store shelves, you had another couple of breweries out of Seattle coming down, Pyramid out of Kalama, you had Grants and Yakima. So before you know, you had probably ten or twelve or, or you know, Oregon Washington based breweries. And so the store shelves um only or the bars, you know, you won't have 30 breweries competing for one handle, you know, I mean, kind of say. So there's, it was more open field then. But anyway, I'm, I'm kind of rambling. But um, when we first cooked up the brewery in Portland, you know, we were making draft beer for, for the local market. And we were making golden ale and amber ale and making it as fast as we could, kegging it as fast as we could, and just getting it out the door because it was needed capacity. So at one point, when it first opened, it was a, a total major production brewery in Portland. Just because know? the demand was so high? Yeah. 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 They, 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 at that point, they were still trying to grow the brewery in Hood River, um, to eventually growing it to a huge brewery. But um, it just, uh, just little, even though it was a marketing, more of a marketing thing to put this brewery in Portland, because um, previously, about a year prior to that, Widmer put a second brewery right next door to a Heath, the Heathman Bakery called Bima Lock, which is now South Park Restaurant. So there okay. used to be a Widmer brewery there, and that, so it was like two different owners. So that this model had been established in Portland, but um, the, the difference being that. You know, at full sale, we put these, you know, put a twenty barrel system in with forty barrel fermenters. So, you know, we were kicking out seventy five kegs out of a tank. You know, you know, two or three times a week. So it's it was we were like taking over down there. I mean, we took over the, the sidewalk. <laughs> you know, it was like I remember when like you know, we were started there to it was level, and eventually the side there was this little curb. Eventually, kind of went like that. Like the whole place is sinking down there. You know, what I, mean? and I don't know if it's some of the weight of the kegs or what, but anyhow. Um, but yeah, but so that brewery went through a different, many different types of. Um, like I said, we started out just being a production brewery, kicking all the beer out that we could. But eventually, two years later, three years later, when they opened up this new two hundred barrel brewery in Hood River, it took a lot of the pressure off Portland. And so, in those twenty years, it went through went through some ebb and flows of less production, more production. Um, eventually, settling into a, a me running a program called the Brewmaster Reserve Program, which was basically. My program, I decided what beers I wanted to make, but I, was, but I was also in charge of, you know, like making the beer, going out and talking about the beer with our distributors, going to see retailers talk about our beer. So I mean, at one point, I mean, I was doing brewing for them. I was, I mean, at one point I, I was running, I was in charge of the state of Colorado and Alaska for them at one point for sales. Wow. As they went through the different motions and the different, and as their, um, the mission of the bridge would change. I would get turned on or turned off in Portland and I would go do other things for the company. Like I was our you know, I would go out and be our face, you know, to the distributors and retailers and stuff. Uh -huh. So so I had a kind of a very multifaceted job. Did you enjoy that part, the traveling and everything? It was all right. After I had had you know my first daughter, it was a little I didn't dig it as much. Yeah. You know, but uh but it was part of my job and, and eventually that that kind of 
it went away eventually, but I always did travel for the company, did, did launch markets or do whatever things. But, but what, what's cool though is that in that process of all these other little hats I wore at Full Sail, I was able to learn a lot more about the business. So in, in opening my own brewery, I, I understood a lot, of the, a lot more about uh, the whole market, the whole, the whole business versus just knowing how to make beer. So I knew how hard it was to get distributors' attention. I knew how hard it was to make an amber ale when suddenly this beer called Fat Tire rolls through. And takes over the world. You know what I mean? It was like, oh, we make amber. Oh, they're making an amber. They have a bike on the bottle. That's so cool. I have to drink that beer. You know, it's yeah. like it's, it's, it's New Belgium basically amberized the entire country. Mm -hmm. um, nothing against them at all. Yeah. But, but just, you know, just interesting how, which is interesting. My experience there was very interesting over time. But eventually uh, they decided that they didn't want to do the Brewmaster Reserve program anymore. And I was like, oh, really? Okay. You want to do this brewer share program? And, we're gonna let our brewers make beers, and we'll market them. And we'll market the brewer, and you know, I was in charge of just you know making sure that beer came out right, you know. But um, at that point, having lost any creative freedom in the company, I was like, uh, I can't. I got to do something else. Yeah. You know? It just became a job. Yeah. Before when I was making, I you know, like I had this great series of beer called the Sunspot series. It was a Sun Sunspot Ale, our IPA, Sun of Spot IPA. Spotless IPA, grandson of Spot IPA. I kind of just kind of playing with this theme of spots, astronomy kind of prior to ecliptic. That it's kind of fun, but it's like I, I huh. got to name the beers. I got to make it was like total creative freedom. And so, but that went away though. It was like, well, I don't know if I can not make a not design a beer ever again. Yeah, that, that, that's not you know, I don't know if I can do that. <laughs> so huh. that led me to start thinking about it. Eventually leaving there and going forward with the. Started in my own place. Okay. And so when did you start Ecliptic? Technically, it started in, uh, incorporated in the fall of 12, 2012, huh. and then we opened up in the fall of 2013. Okay. It took about a year to find a building. I, I left my job in April of uh, 12, and I signed the lease on a building in April of 2013. So it took literally a year to find a place that was suitable for what we wanted, to, what I wanted to do with with having room for the restaurant, 3,000 square feet for the restaurant. But then another, in our case, we had another 10,000 square feet for virtual brewery space. So I, I was looking for a particular thing mm -hmm. and um, just happened upon this. Well, I'd driven by this building on Cook Street, like up Mississippi countless times. And it was just, it was gray building, big barbed wire fence around it, razor wire. And it, it was, I never saw any activity there at all. It had formerly been an auto body repair shop. And, uh, but eventually, um, my broker was able to find the broker that was starting to, was going to lease that out, and, and that, that's where we found it. And it, was, it was like you know, I walked in. I'm like, well, yeah, of course, this is it. We're on Mississippi Avenue. <laughs> we got fourteen thousand square feet and a parking lot. Hmm, maybe it might work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's cool. And that was right as Mississippi was becoming that hot little strip in town. And, yeah, and still is to this day. You know, mm -hmm. so we got Prost at one end. We got. Clip to get the down. Well, I we used to stop at Fremont. I'm saying, no, no, it goes to Cook Street now, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Gotta yeah. go down the hill one block, you know. So And so you get to do exactly what you want to do now, yeah? In terms of creating. Yeah, for, for the most part. I mean, I mean, over time, I mean, when I first started, I had some what I thought were just just awesome ideas for beers that I thought it was like, oh, this is so cool. No one's ever thought of this. You know, I was, I was gonna make this beer called Hefe Pills, right? And I'm like, yeah, it's a, you know, it, what people don't realize, you heard that you've heard Hefeweizen, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. So, you know, so Hefe in German means yeast. It doesn't mean wheat. The Weizen, that's the wheat. 
So Hefe refers to basically unfiltered beer. So I was going to make this unfiltered pilsner and call it Hefe Pils. Probably someone's probably actually going to probably pull this off and actually be successful at it someday, but <laughs> we weren't. So I was like, it just confused people. Like they're like, is this a wheat pilsner? Uh-huh. I'm like, no, no, no. Hefe means yeast. But it's like, so I was just in my own little nerd world, you know. Yeah. Where it's like, this is so clever. It is not clever because people just didn't get it. And eventually, <laughs> you know, this beer became this. You know, it was called uh, Spica, and um, it was called Spica Hefe Pils. And eventually became Spica Pilsner. <laughs> And then I got accused of being racist because I, what's what's with a spica beer? Oh, I'm no. like, oh no, that's not what I am at all. No. <laughs> I'm not, not with Spica. Oh my god, I got to change the name, so we changed oh, it to Spica. No. And then so it, was, it went from this kind of nightmare of you know Spica Hefe Pils to Spica Pilsner to eventually Spectrum uh, Pilsner. You know, and <laughs> and now we have Pixis Pilsner, but that's many years later. But um, yeah, just it's interesting how I really learned about how naming and what you call things and can be really mis taken the wrong way. And I've had brewers coming and going. Is this a wheat pilsner? <laughs> like, no, Hefa, you mean yeast. You know? Well, to go back to what you were saying earlier, too, about fat tire, it's important the way you market as well. And it's important the way, I mean, the color scheme. And, I mean, you, you mentioned uh, spots a second ago. And all of these cans have the the spots and kind of like the the starry sky. Is that what you're trying to do here? Yeah, I mean, the brewery was, um, it might have ran around, around for brewery names for quite some time, but... um. You know, ecliptic is the references the ecliptic plane, which is the path that all the known planets, the eight planets that exist, still all travel, and we're all kind of held in a disk around the sun. So, like a few months ago, we had a great planetary alignment where we had, you know, Mercury, Mars, us, you know, uh, wait, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and they were all lined up in a line in in, an early morning sky. And unfortunately, here in Portland, it was too cloudy to see ever see it, but um. It's not online. Does that count? Yeah, I guess so. You know, but that really that represents that we're all on this on this on this plane, and that's our path around the sun. And of course, it takes us one year to go around the sun. It takes Mercury about thirty eight days or whatever to go around the sun for their year. But point being that I knew that um, you know, when I when I opened up with, as a brew pub, you know, I wanted to make sure that the food was as good as the beer because I know there's tons of brew pubs out there. Their food's just kind of an afterthought. It's like yeah. you want some wings? How about some? cheese dip, you know, or something like that. So I knew that I wanted to have a, a more of a seasonal food program, um, you know, a place where you would stay for the food as well. You'd go for food as well as you would go for the beer, you know what I mean? Um, I mean, my whole tagline at first was like, the beer will bring you in, but the food will bring you back kind of idea that if we provide really good food, people will, and we also provide wine, beer, and alcohol, hard liquor drinks that won't, someone doesn't have to leave to go get a, you know, okay, have your beer, I'm, well, I'm going to get a, I want to go get a vodka tonic, you know, it's like. I want you to just have a vodka tonic here. <laughs> but most brew pubs didn't have alcohol, you yeah. know. So, but anyway, the ecliptic plane ties into seasonal beer, seasonal foods. As our, as we, you know, go around Earth on spaceship Earth around the sun every year, we, you know, we're, now we're back on, you know, it's the 18th of August. Yeah, it's hot again, right? <laughs> Muggy, whatever, you know. So, what are you going to eat? Well, fresh tomatoes sound pretty good right now, right? Yeah. So, what can you go with a fresh tomato? What kind of beer can you make that goes with that, you know, kind of thing? So, okay. So, it's just part of the theme. And the astronomy was the big theme because I was a, at one point, when I had more time, I was an you know amateur astronomer of such, where I'd take my telescope and join other star nerds, and we'd go out and look at faint objects in the sky, look at galaxies and clusters and things, and amateur astronomy. So it was my big hobby at that point. So I was like, I'm gonna make this space theme brewery. You know? Very cool. So that's where all the so everything we have here has some form of um, astronomical reference as far as his name might go. A couple of beers 
have come out without that astronomical reference, but most have some form of a reference to them. Mm -hmm. And so are you able to experiment with fruit now that you're running the ship? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Uh, the first thing I did when I opened was <laughs> I made a fruit beer. Yeah. <laughs> I got fresh. One time, well, it kind of goes back to what I told you a minute ago about the, the finding those wild grapes behind the roadhouse. Uh, there at Cornelius Pass Roadhouse was like, you know, that, that made a really cool beer because it brought this kind of a, and I have no idea what kind of hops they were, but eventually I made this beer at the Clifton where we first opened with a Riesling juice. And that, that kind of added this kind of wine, kind of made it, yeah, that kind of little, you know, white wine flavor to the beer, but not a wine, but just, you know, it was the first thing I did with fruit at, at Ecliptic was with uh, just Riesling juice. Mm -hmm. And how many different products do you guys have at this point? I've got four here on the table, Pixis, uh, Flamingo Planet, Phaser, and Starburst. How many, how many total do you guys have? Um, right now you'd be able to get two sour beers, uh, two Kana and, and Karina's, uh, Tangerine and Peach Sours. And then um, we have a porter called Capella. And then uh, we have a newer IPA called Lego, which is a 16 ounce like can mm -hmm. IPA. So those are beers. We, and then we're going to go Planets, a seasonal beer. So that one rotates, which is now called, now a new beer is out called Cloudcore. But um, gotcha. so we normally have about probably eight, eight to nine products out at a given time. So we always have collaborations. Like we have a collab coming out uh, next week with Holy Mountain out of Seattle. Okay. And um, we, we always have some. That's the thing right now. You, People are putting out tons of beers <laughs> because that's what the public wants. You know? yeah. And that's one thing I learned through time is that, you know, make the beers people want to drink. And people did not want to drink half pills. Yeah. <laughs> 2012, they probably don't want to drink it now. So they just don't know that yet. That's 10 right, years exactly. they will. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Someone's going to do that and it's going to piss me <laughs> off. So. Yeah, that's my idea. <laughs> well, they'll, they'll call it the John Harris, hopefully. Sweaty. But um, well, what's what's next? You uh, do you have do you have goals of opening another place? Are you cool with with what you got going on right now? Are you going to try to go to Japan? Like, what's what's going on? Well, we do sell some beer in Japan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a guy who lives in Portland, um, and he he exports beer to Japan. So he exports a lot of craft in, in Tokyo. And actually, a couple of years ago, I got to go to. Uh, Hood the Fuji Festival, where uh, brewers from Mount from Hood Mount Hood went to uh, uh, Tokyo, and about oh, I guess only about three weeks ago, four weeks ago, we had uh, Fuji the Hood, where the Japanese brewers came over here. So, mm -hmm. so it, it was it was Fuji the Hood, then Hood the Fuji, then the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> A couple years later, then the, we did Fuji the Hood again. So next year, technically, we're going to do Hood the Fuji again next year. So uh, we'll see if that happens or not, but. Um, yeah, but it was fun. But anyhow, so that's the Japan story. But um, no, I mean, I tell you, I mean, honestly, right, right now, um, it's getting better. But pandemic, you know, post pandemic twenty one twenty two has been really hard to find staffing. It's been a real issue. Not that it's a really fun topic to talk about, but you know, but in business, it's just to find people to work has been really, really difficult. To the point mm -hmm. where we had a, a second location actually opened. We opened during the, about not quite a year ago. That you know, we got to the point where we had to, we were closing one of our restaurants to that restaurant based on staffing, and we were like, finally, we got, we got to keep one restaurant open. We can't keep. We're closed at the mothership today. Oh, Moon Room's closed. You know, <laughs> so we decided just to. It was kind of weird. People are like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "Well, we're going to keep one restaurant going," and so right now we're um, in the process of getting that going again. But we took about a, will be a couple months hiatus just to kind of get 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 staffing because it's just been a real pain. Honestly, yeah, it's pretty pervasive. 
pervasive because you go to a lot of places and they'll just have a sign in the window. Hey, we're closing at five. We don't have anybody to work. Yeah, no, it's, it's a real problem. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're driving down the, driving the, drive by a bus that says $7,000 signing bonus to be a bus driver. You I know? know. It's crazy. That's you know? nuts. And I'm talking, but I'm also talking across, you know, my friends in Seattle, my friends across the country. It's like the staffing thing isn't just a Portland, Oregon issue or a ecliptic issue. It's a, it's an industry wide issue. It's like, yeah, a lot of places just, yep, don't have anybody today. Going to close at six. We, we had to do that a lot too. It's like, no, why, why are we? Yeah, it's crazy. It's so weird because I understand, I understand quitting your job if you don't like it or if you're not making enough money and going somewhere else to make more money. But it seems like there's just no one working. Like what, there's all these jobs that need to be filled. <laughs> like where is everybody working, man? There's got to be something. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, well, I mean, Keep in mind, unfortunately, that over a million people died from this pandemic, you know, yeah. which wasn't gotcha. necessarily the younger people, but yeah. I mean, it's a reality that there's the workforce has shrunk, you mm -hmm. know, and um, yeah, I know what it is. And I think that, you know, you know, the, the government money that businesses got and, and that individuals got really helped out, kept, you know, the nation from tanking, you know, without question during the pandemic. So, but um, yeah, when they, when, they, when they were offering that extra $400 a week on top of normal unemployment. Yeah. No one wanted. I mean, yeah. at a certain point, it was like, "Hey, we're gonna go reopen. We're gonna reopen." You, I'm, I'm not available, man. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna stay home and take my 400 a week plus my 200 or whatever, and basically live on the lamb for. <laughs> so yeah, that was, that was real hard to fight that. Yeah, because they would make more money yeah. not going to work. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting situation. It was. I mean, it was good for a lot of people who needed it, but yeah, there were some people that took advantage of it for sure. Yeah, I don't know where I don't know where they're working right now either. I don't know, but then again, some people. I mean, a lot of people left the service industry, left the restaurant industry. I mean, because of the pandemic, they felt like too um, vulnerable. We're getting yeah. sick, so a lot of people just have left the have left the hospitality industry. Mm -hmm. I don't want to work in a kitchen anymore. I don't want to work in a front of house anymore. I don't want to be a bartender. So yeah. a lot of people just have had career changes through the pandemic. Mm -hmm. A lot of people had to like when their restaurant closed and they had to do something. Some got other went into software or something. You know. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yep. Uh, well, should we uh, should we try one of these? Out of these four, which one's your favorite? Oh, that's like picking your favorite kid. <laughs> okay, which one at eleven twenty-one in the morning do you want to drink? Oh, have you had have you had any of these before? Or? I've had. I don't think I've had Pixis, and I don't think I've had Flamingo Planet, but I've definitely had Phaser and Starburst. Gotcha. Well, this is a fruit beer. <laughs> it has guava in it. Let's do it. Okay. I got solos here too. Okay, cool. Yeah, the uh, it's funny is that um. It was a great, the great guava shortage of 2022 happened this year too. It was kind of fun where you start making this beer, which you made for several years. It's kind of a popular um, seasonal beer for us. Mm -hmm. And uh, But at a certain point, we couldn't, Oregon Fruit Products, who um, Thank you. makes uh, uh, aseptic fruit purees for brewing, well, for other things, baking, whatever, but they make primarily uh, a lot for the brewing industry. They, um, they couldn't get guava. Like, well, yeah, they're supposed to be here and... Eight weeks. And so we're like, crap. We, we don't want to switch our seasonal already, you know. And so we finally found some in Texas from Fierce Fruit. And, but we had to, but then shipping's out of the, out of the, you know, off the charts right now, but it cost to move freight around the country. And so now we, you know, like $800 in fruit, $800 in shipping. <laughs> it was like, yeah. ah, you know. When you can't really just double the price of the, of the, the beer either. Mm. Well, that's the thing about beer is that, you know, it's, um, there's a certain window of what people will pay for beer too. You know, they'll pay this much or this much or this much. And, you know, so where, where you price your beer is, is, is how price at 899 
you're not making much money, but you're selling lots of beer. Yeah. Ten ninety nine, you're making some money and selling some beer. You know, but if you're like up to twelve ninety nine, thirteen ninety nine, now it's yeah, that's a pretty expensive six pack these days. You know. Yeah, it's pretty weird though how you'll justify it though, because if you go to a restaurant or you go to the brew pub, you'll order a seven dollar beer and not think anything about it. You know, sixteen ounces, seven dollars. You know, somewhere in there. Oh yeah. But then you go to the grocery store, and a six pack is twelve. You get a lot more beer, and you're like, uh, I don't know. You know, it's like <laughs> depending on what scenario you're in. <laughs> don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true though. Yeah, I mean, three beers out these days is you know at least twenty twenty five bucks with mm-hmm. tips. Yeah. You know? And versus, yeah, you could get a twelve pack mm-hmm. for twenty bucks. You know. Yeah, I, it's the experience though. Like when you go to the restaurant with your friends and you're hanging out and you're getting food, it's you're selling an experience. Right. It's, it's not right. getting a six pack and sitting in your living room. You know. No, no, it's different. no, it's totally different. Yeah. And also, lots of, I mean, there's lots of breweries out there that you know, hell, there are brew pubs and they don't sell their beer in a in a package. They don't. You know, that's where you get it. You know. Yeah. Like a lot of big women, I mean, they can their beer now, but for the most part, you, you used, when you want to drink their beer, you had to go to one of the restaurants because mm-hmm. you couldn't get it anywhere else, you know? So yeah. there's that draw too with beer. And so, yeah. yeah, but it is, no, I mean, beer's not, you know, not the cheapest mm-hmm. these days, but because, you know. But it's delicious. So do the uh, the brothers ever call you up and like, hey, John, what's it going to take to get you back over here? <laughs> they did that once. <laughs> when they, before they opened the Edgefield Brewery, I got a call from Conrad and saying, Hey man, um, how's it going? Doing great, man. How you doing? He's like, you ever think about coming back to Portland? I'm like, well, not necessarily. And he's like, he's like, well, we got to do this Edgefield thing. We're gonna put the put a big brewery out there. And we thought, you know, with your newer, you know, my newer experience, we thought about you. And I'm like, are your fermenters refrigerated? Yeah, <laughs> which is my call to arms. You're right. Yeah, and um, I decided I stayed at the shoes. I decided not to take that job. But, yeah, but, uh, it was nice to have shot for the back. And actually, um. Every year, there's um, for the Hillsdale, or for, for the Barleywell, the Barley Mill anniversary, which is up on Barleywell's on Hawthorne. They always brew a beer at Hillsdale to celebrate that that bar, that uh, that bar. And um, normally in the so maybe the spring, about April, they'll gather gather the family together. I guess you'd say. And so I've been invited in the past few years to show up, and we basically you bring an offering, and you sit around and you have lunch, and you like. I remember one year I came and I had a bottle of a Stella Blue, which was a blueberry beer I had made back. And I had given my sister, graduating from high school, <laughs> this bottle of blueberry beer. And she never opened it. And uh, eventually I asked her if I could have it. And she said, yeah, you can have it because it's been sitting in my parents' house for you know decades. And uh, I was able to go to one of these, these lunches where I would go, I have brought Stella Blue from 1987. And they're all like... Oh my God, <laughs> that is so cool! <laughs> you know, and uh, it's probably the only one, right? Oh, it was only, yeah, it was, yeah, it was bought, bought off the tap, you know. Yeah, it was just just at Hillsdale on the paddle. But anyhow, long story short, they have this, they gathered people get together this once a year, and they you bring offerings, and they might write recite poetry, and they'll rip a piece of the poet of the poetry and throw it in the bucket, and everything goes in the bucket. Eventually, that whole bucket, whether it be like I brought this bottle of Jack Daniels from, or I brought this bottle of you know, Mondavi wine, or I mean, it can get pretty like. Your taste is some pretty killer shit at one point. And I'll be like, oh, mm-hmm. my God, this thing's 50 years old. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or whiskeys and all this stuff just get – the bucket then goes – as the beer is being brewed that day, at the very end, it goes into the kettle and gets boiled up and becomes part of the part of the anniversary beer. So they, they still do that. It's pretty fun. That's cool. So That's cool. So I, know we, I, I was able to make it this year. can't remember why, but I couldn't make it. 
because basically you have to you have the whole day over to it. <laughs> yeah, because it's like you're done. It's like where's where's the lift? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> get me out of so here. You know? <laughs> but uh, no, but it's uh, yeah, but just those, those kind of traditions are fun. You know, it's the fact that there's such history now in beer. You know, there's you know. You know, people are like, oh, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're a legend or whatever. I'm like, no, I just, I'm just making beer. I've just been making longer than a lot of people have, you know? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's why I was so interested when I when I heard about you. I was like, man, he's been doing this for 30 years. That's uh, that's significant. All the things you've seen and all the batches you've brewed and all the things you've tried. Like, you have a wealth of knowledge on all this stuff. It's pretty cool. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's been fun. I mean, this really cool job turned into a career, which, you know, then it turned into, you know, just, it was really cool is just how many, you know, people are employed by this, this craft beer business now. Yeah. It's, I mean, all the cool hops that have been, been made in the last few years because of craft brewers driving these hop, you know, hop growers for innovation and new flavors and trying to drive new flavors and in, in the in the hops and, you know, getting mango out of a hop versus putting mango in your beer or strawberry out of a hop. And just so that, just that whole side of it just... All the brewers, you know, they've been making beer for so long. But even, I mean, the young ones I like get to meet are just, you know, just, you know piss fire, ready to go. Like, we're going to do this, you know. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, God. And they're like, yeah, go, you know, <laughs> do it, you know. And so it's really cool that, I mean, yeah, I mean, shit. Because people weren't even born when I started brewing. Yeah. <laughs> we're brewing now. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Not that I'm not old, but I'm older. <laughs> it's all right. Good things come with age. Cool. Well, John, I appreciate it. Thanks for coming down. Thanks for inviting me. It's been fun. Yep. All right, cheers.